So, so Olympic athletes, they, they blow my mind. And not just their abilities, but their discipline. What you have to do to become an Olympian is, is absolutely mind-blowing. In, in the most, I don't know, the, the, think of the, the sport, Winter or Summer Olympics, that you might think is kind of silly. You, what was that one that was in the Winter Olympics? It got really popular a few years ago where they, they kind of roll that thing on the floor. Curling. Curling, that's the one. Curling. What a bizarre little sport. <laughs> but the funny thing about curling is if you want to get to an Olympic level of curling, you need to be strong in your quads, in your glutes. You need to have flexibility in your spine. You need to have eye-hand coordination. You need to work together as a team. you got them dudes with the brooms going like nuts with the brooms, making sure that, that little curling thing goes down the ice. It takes an, amass, an amazing amount of discipline. We're talking about when you first start doing whatever your sport is at a young age, people recognizing that you have a talent. And then there's just the investment of your parents and then the investment of your community. That you have to, you literally suffer through injury and pain. You go through sacrifice after sacrifice. You, you put aside friendships if necessary to go to that goal of making it to the Olympics and the possibility of winning a medal. And, and to think about that. Now I want you to think right now, and we're going to come back to this then. I want you to think about, I want you to see if you can name three gold medal winners from the last Olympics. Think about that. And thinking about that, let's talk instead about Jesus' suffering. Because when we talk about the Passion Week of Christ, it's funny because the English word passion, we don't usually connect that with something negative, right? Unless it's like a crime of passion. But it's this idea that means something that's, that you're feeling intensely. And it's usually kind of connected to an idea of pain, especially in the New Testament. And Luke here in Luke 22 is starting what is known as the Passion Week of Christ. The week of his sufferings. When his rejection would happen, when his beatings would happen, when his crucifixion would happen. And he begins this, this Passion Week showing us something about why Jesus is suffering. In fact, it starts with what Jesus is, is going to go through with this person that we know of as Judas. Now, Luke tells us in Luke 22, we just, uh, verse 1, we just read it, that this is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Passover. We'll talk about the significance of those feasts as we get down the text. But it's really clear here, we're being reminded by Luke, that the religious leaders of the day wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the, out of the way because they felt like he was, he was a competition for what they're doing. They feel like they were the ones that God had chosen to lead Israel. They were the ones that God had chosen to make sure that God's people were where they're supposed to be. Jesus comes on the scene and claims to be God's chosen king, the Messiah. And they're going, no, 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 you can't be him. You're not who we want. You're not who we expect. And they want him gone. But the problem is they fear the people. And don't see this as in like, oh, we don't want them to think bad about us if we kill Jesus. That's not what they're afraid of. What they're afraid of is if they come against Jesus and there's a riot during a feast, which is what the Romans were always afraid the Jews were going to do. That they were going to bring some riot during some feast and bring chaos. And so these religious leaders were afraid if that happens, then we're going to lose our credibility with the Romans. We don't want that to happen. And so what do they do in verse, uh, in verse, uh, in indication of verse 3? is they're going to hire Judas. But what happens here is Luke wants us to see clearly that Judas, in moving this direction, he's under the influence of Satan. Now, Satan, if you don't know who that is, Satan, or in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's the Satan, he's the accuser or the adversary. He, we, we, we kind of believe that he was probably an angel of God, uh, uh, maybe even uh, in charge of worship, I don't know. But he was an angel of God who rebelled against God, thinking that he himself could become like God. And so God flicks him out of heaven. There's a rebellion in heaven. He leaves, and with him, a third of the angels who we now refer to as demons. These are fallen angels. 
And the thing that we, we need to, to understand this is we see Judas is going to uh, obviously betray Jesus. We need to understand that, that this betrayal is actually satanically induced. And we need to see this. When it comes to our rebellion against God, and whether you feel it or not or know it or not, you do rebel against God. I do rebel against God. That that rebellion initiated or, or originated with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they were provoked towards that rebellion by this rebellious angel, Lucifer or the Satan. And he's always against, he's always encouraging and enabling our rebellion against God. You need to know that. The Bible's really clear that we're in this battle. We wrestle, not against flesh and blood, against other people, but we wrestle against these principalities and powers, these spiritual hosts in heavenly places, these demonic beings. And our wrestling is, is, is even as Jesus followers, we have this new heart that says, I want to follow God, but we have this old nature that we all have that wants to rebel against God. And guess which one Satan wants to encourage? He wants to encourage us to push God away, to replace God with an, an, another false God, to rebel against God. And this is where Judas finds himself. Now here's what's interesting. We, we kind of find out a little bit about Judas' motive in verse 4. Verses 4 to 6. It says, So Judas goes away, and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers, this is Judas under the influence of Satan, uh, that he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed, notice, to give him money so he contented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So, so what happens? Satan puts it on Jesus' heart, you need to betray this Jesus guy. Yeah, you think he's the Messiah, and we don't know exactly what was going on in his head. Maybe he thought, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. He just needs a little provoke, uh, just a little bit of a, a provoke. And maybe when they come to uh, arrest him, he'll, he'll show that he is actually the Messiah, he'll show his strength, and then he'll bring in his kingdom. Maybe it was that. Or, or maybe it was just he thought, no, I don't think this guy is who I thought he is. And, he's, and Judas is beginning to agree with the false teachers. And the, so, so Satan kind of capitalizes on that and encourages him, no, you need to, to get this guy arrested and killed because he's, the, he's a false Messiah. Or maybe, listen, because we don't know anything from the scripture about those two things, maybe it is simply just that he was greedy. He just wanted the money. You know, the scripture is really clear, right? And one, you can look it up later, 1 Timothy 6.10, I think it is. It says that the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Even the betraying of the Messiah is at least, in, in, in one sense, a factor in Judas's betrayal. And we know that Judas was a thief, John's gospel tells us that, that, uh, that he would, just in those direct terms, he was a thief and used to take money from the offering box. He was kind of the treasurer of their ministry and kind of took some stuff off the top, skimmed it and put it in his pocket. And we, we need to see this because it's funny, when it comes to how the enemy works, one of the ways the enemy gets a foothold is how we deal with money. Specifically, how greedy we are for material stuff. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, come on, man. I'm sure there's people here like this, but I'm not like this. John, I don't make very much money. I'm kind of poor. Well, you can be dirt poor and still be greedy for money. You can be filthy rich and still be greedy for money. What you have isn't the issue. The issue is this. We underestimate, especially in the West, when we're prosperous, what a foothold greed has on our lives. How the enemy wants to use that. And I'll give you an example. I, I think most of us would probably sense that there's a good chance that things are going to get worse before they get better economically. Maybe a whole lot worse. We, we might be facing a time financially, guys, where it's really going to test us. Things are going to be really tough. And I want you to think about that. If we think about that, let's be honest, there's few things that stress us out more. Because the idea of having to go without in our day and age freaks us out. You know why? Because we are naturally greedy, and the enemy uses that. Don't underestimate this. It's not just a footnote about Judas. We don't know exactly what his motives are, but we knew, though, that at least one factor was the love of money. 
But now drop down to verse 21. This is, we're getting into where, where Jesus and, and his disciples are, are celebrating the Passover. But he says something specific about Judas's betrayal that, that fits with what we're talking about here. Listen, notice it says, But behold, Jesus says, The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, it's interesting that they were doing this. They're all thinking it could have been any of them. There's a, something good about that, but before we give them too much credit for humility, wait till we get to the next point. <laughs> But still, there's something good about that. But here's the, the thing I really want you to notice is what it says in verse 22. That Jesus says, listen, the Son of Man goes as this has been determined. In other words, he's making it clear it was always, it's always been God's plan that Christ be crucified. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The cross isn't plan B, like, okay, plan A was to make a perfect world and that would never be messed up or destroyed. Oh, man, Adam, Eve messed that up. Okay, well, plan B will be I'll send my son and then he'll come and say, everything's fine now, I'm here and, and we'll, we'll, we'll start all over and it'll be all good. Well, that's not working out. They crucified him, so now what are we going to do? That's not the way it works. As far as God was concerned, from eternity past, when he knew he would make the world, he also knew that world would be corrupted and broken and only saved through his son. So, so Jesus is clear of this. He's saying the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, God's plan does not remove Judas's responsibility. This is really important for us to understand. See, one of the things that happens through Christ's sufferings, one of the things we see clearest through Christ's sufferings, and, and this gets pulled out in the book of Acts as well, is the fact that his sufferings expose our natural human desire that wants to push God away. We, we don't want to believe this, but this is what it's like. Listen to this in Acts chapter 2. When Peter is preaching to the 3,000, many of, uh, or, or actually probably more than that, he's preaching to thousands on Pentecost. Here's what he says. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that? God's plan that he would be given up, but you are guilty of crucifying him. But God raised them up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now this is important because listen, this is, one of the things that we tend to do, is, and this is part of our natural human natures, we look at the suffering in the world and our first thought is, we're going to blame God. He must be responsible. You know why? He's got the power. We kind of have this instinct that if there's a God, he's in control. And that's a good instinct. Because it makes perfect sense. But here's the problem. Just because God's in control doesn't mean we're not responsible for our free will choices. We are. Have you ever heard anybody say, I've said this before, but have you ever, ever heard anybody say it's easier to get forgiveness than permission? It's this kind of mindset that says, you know, we probably shouldn't do this, but let's just do this because we probably can get Forgiveness afterwards. Let's do the bad thing and, and trust the authorities will forgive us or understand why we did that. See, this is part of our human nature. This is what the sufferings of Jesus expose, that we actually want God to be gone. We wish he didn't exist. <coughs> I had a conversation, uh, I think it was last week, with an, uh, an older man, bright man, very intelligent man, and an engineer, uh, an uh, agnostic is probably what he'd call himself. And basically, his faith in science is absolute. He says, we, he says to me, we can't really know much, but anything we can know, we can only know through science. And so I'm convinced that one day we'll know all that we can know and things will get better because we are learning things through science. And I said to him, do you realize that what you're doing there is not science, it's philosophy? Which is okay, we all do philosophy before we do anything else. So I said, do you realize that this is what you're doing? Oh, no, 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 I don't care about philosophy, I only care about science. 
And he, and he goes on to talk to me about this thing called the anthropic, anthropic principle, which I had to look up and see what that really was. And it's just this idea that, that this universe is huge and it's vast. And when we look at where we are as this little planet and this one solar system and this one galaxy after millions and millions, and, and we have actually life, and not just life, but intelligent life on this planet. And the odds of that are just extreme. Like, there's no way that could happen by accident. It just seems so extreme that the anthropic principle says, basically, because that, that we see this, we observe that we are this rare bit of life in this massive, endless universe, it must mean that there's multiple universes. You guys have ever seen Spider-Man um, uh, in the multiverse? The best Spider-Man movie, i got to say. <laughs> Coolest music, great cartoon. But, but here, here's the reality, okay? It's faith. It's make-believe. It's... It's not science. There's no observation of this. The observation is, listen, the observation is this world, this planet we live on is so radically rare, so radically finely tuned, everything is just exactly as it needs to be, that the, that the obvious conclusion would be there has to be a designer. But if we refuse to believe that, what do you believe? Oh, maybe there's just a multiverse. Anything but there's a God. Now, now listen. The reason I'm bringing this up is when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the sufferings of Jesus and even the betrayal of Jesus, it exposes that this is where our heart is. That, that, that we are actually very much fallen creatures and we can't blame God for that. We would make, we've made our own choices. We continue to make our own choices. Now, you said, well, come on, John. You said this was going to be a hopeful message. It is. Don't worry. We're getting there. But we need to see this. This is the first thing uh, out of three that the sufferings of Jesus do for us. They expose the desires of our fallenness. What happens? Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, uh, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover, they're kind of right connected to each other date-wise. One starts in the Hebrew month of Nisan, from the 14th and 15th, the other one starts on the 15th down for another seven days, okay? And the Passover is the celebration of how God redeemed Israel from the bondage of Egypt, right? So just an amazing story of God telling Pharaoh, or through Moses, let my people go, and Pharaoh saying, no, I don't want to do it, and God's sending a plague, and then Pharaoh going, okay, I'll let him go, and then, okay, no, I changed my mind, I won't let him go, God said in another plague, and on and backwards and forwards. And finally, the last plague was this plague of the angel of death who would kill the firstborn of everyone. And so God says, listen, God says even to his people, listen, you need to warn Pharaoh, but also what you need to do is you need to take a perfect lamb and that lamb needs to be slain and the blood of that lamb needs to be applied to the doorposts of your home and when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your home and that judgment won't hit you. So that's what they do. And the feast was commemorate that when they did that, finally Pharaoh let them go and they were able to leave Egypt. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, unleavened just means no yeast. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is, is to celebrate their, it's to commemorate their going through, after they've left e Egypt, it's the, it's the Exodus wanderings through the desert and how God sustained them and kept them and how God brought them through. And these things were a big celebration. It was required that every Jewish male come. And so here they're all coming together. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, says in verse 8, that he sends Peter and John saying, go and prepare, for, prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So they said to him, well, where will you have us prepare it? I mean, they're probably thinking at this point, it's kind of late in the day and millions of people are here and there's not going to be any room for us to rent. How are we going to do this? And so he says, listen, verse 10, Jesus said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, this, that's a sign. Because men in that culture didn't carry the water. That was a woman's work. So this is like an indication. He said, look for that. He says, follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And he says, and then they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
Now, we've seen this before, haven't we, in Luke's gospel. Here it is again, where Jesus, listen, he's prearranging this stuff. He's making sure it's all ready. And this is important for us to see because Jesus is really preparing even all the logistics for this meal for them to be together. And he's wanting them to be involved in this. And there's something important here because preparing this meal, I mean, kind of making a holiday meal for everybody, is probably not as exciting as casting out a demon. Remember that the disciples were sent out before, weren't they? To cast out demons. And, and, and to preach. And, and they came back after all this power. They do miracles. They were, had all this power to do miracles. And they cast out demons and they preached to all these people in Israel. And they come back from them like, whoa, Jesus, it was amazing. We could cast out demons they would go. And Jesus says, man, I'm glad you had a good time. But if you rejoice, rejoice in that, this, that your name is written in the book of life. So, I mean, these guys went through some exciting stuff, right? Making a Passover meal, probably not quite as exciting. Especially the stress of you got to do it today, you know, get it all done today. But listen, I want you to understand that this is equally as important as the other things that Jesus sent them out to do. And they were equally as dependent upon Jesus to do it. This is kind of what we're seeing in this. Now, this meal is important, and we're going to see why in just a minute. Look at verse 14. And when they, the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. Now, what's happening here is, is, is not Jesus establishing his, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, which we're going to partake today of. That's going to happen in the next verse. This is him uh, kind of participating in the Passover feast, the Jewish feast. The fact that he and his disciples are celebrating this together is important because not just for what he's going to do with it, but just in the sense that they were considering themselves a family. You, you celebrated the Passover with your family. That's the way God commanded it. So doing them doing it together, they're celebrating with their family. You could bring other families in if your family was small so you could consume the whole lamb that was slain and that you would eat on Passover, but you did it with family, close people, okay? And so doing that, he's saying, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do. In fact, he uses what's called a Hebrewism. That's when he, like, two Hebrew phrases or two Greek phrases are put together for emphasis. When he says, uh, when he says this in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. He says, I have desired to desire to eat this Passover. I am, I am just, this is what I've wanted more than anything. And this is important too because Luke loves to talk about the different meals that Jesus would have with people. Because meals in that culture, of course, were saying, I want a relationship with you. And so here what Jesus is emphasizing, listen, is that he wants more than anything, more than anything, to have authentic fellowship with his disciples. That's what he wants. More than anything. He's longing for this. Now, this is really important as we consider what he's going to do as he's going to take the Passover feast, this Jewish feast, and turn it around to mean something about what he wants for his disciples. Look at verse 19. In verse 19 it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now Jesus is still celebrating a Passover feast, but now he's basically saying, this feast was a foreshadow of my work. So that unleavened bread, that chunk of, of, uh, of bread that had no leaven in it, was made in, in, in haste, it, it had nothing that would... Leaven tends to represent sin, had nothing that would represent sin. When he takes that piece and he breaks it, he gives thanks and he breaks it. He's saying, this no longer represents the affliction of God's people through the wilderness. This represents the affliction I'm about to go through. And then he says, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup, is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
the, the blood of the lamb that they would collect at Passover was, was a picture of the covenant God made for, for, for his people. I've redeemed you out of Egypt to myself through the blood of the lamb. Jesus is now saying, look, the blood of the lamb at Passover isn't what redeems you. It's my blood. Now, when he says new covenant, listen, I guarantee you when he says new covenant and then connects new covenant with his blood, the disciples are going, whoa. Because these good Jewish guys, they knew exactly what the new covenant was. They knew God says through the prophet Jeremiah that there was going to, God was going to make a new covenant with his people. You guys know what a covenant is, right? A covenant is like a contract based on love. It's like basically saying, I am committed to keep my word to this people. In the ancient days, in fact, you see this kind of in the Old Testament as well, when two parties wanted to make a contract, or they would literally, they would cut a covenant. That's the word that's used for covenant in the Old Testament. They would cut a covenant. They would get an animal, they would slice it, they would butcher it in half. They would lay out the pieces. They would say their promises and they'd walk through those, those cut up pieces together as a way to publicly say, we will keep the words that we've just committed at the, to the point of death. This is what they would do. So when God says, I'm making a covenant with you, my people Israel, through, 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 by, by bringing you out of Egypt, and I want that to be seen as being sealed by the blood of this lamb. And then Jesus says, listen, the blood of that lamb at Passover, the lamb that you would have slain, is not the blood of the new covenant. It's me, my blood, that's the blood of the new covenant. This new contract in love. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 31, right? This is the, the prophecy about the new covenant. The author of Hebrews talks about this as law. And just look at what the new covenant is. Listen, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. Notice the, the first aspect of the new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, God says this to people he's already in covenant with. But he says, I'm going to do a new covenant. Why? Because the new covenant is about inward change, not just outward conformity. That because Christ shed his blood, listen, he's providing a way for us to be changed from the inside out. That is the new covenant. So anybody, listen, anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, if you're here today and you go, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that I believe that he rose from the dead, and you've been, as, as, as Jesus said, born from above. You've been regenerated. You're part of the new covenant. And part of that new covenant is that regeneration where you'd get some new life on the inside. You'd get a new heart. But not just that. Listen, it's not just inward change. and not just uh, outward conformity. Also, it's about individual relationship, not just cultural religion. Jeremiah goes on to say, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. It's something that we kind of just kind of go, oh, it's, we say so flippantly, it's about a personal relationship. It's not about religion. As if it's like a common thing. We, we, we forget the privilege of any of us knowing God, having a real relationship with God. See, the Jews were ministered to or, or, or related to collectively. Now, we are too, don't get me wrong, we're related to collectively. God does deal with us as a collective. This is a really important concept that we have a hard time in the West, in our individualistic West, to get through our heads. But God does relate to us as, as a community as well but he also is willing to make himself known directly to us without any mediation except Jesus himself. You know what that means? You don't need me to pray for you to know God. You can know God going right through Jesus. You don't have to be a part of a specific church to know God. Any church that preaches the real Jesus can be where you go together with other people that know God and you can know God. 
I want you to think about this. Because I really feel like we don't see the value of this as we should. That, that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever, any individual would believe in him would not have, would not perish but have everlasting life. That we as an individual, I, I can know God. I can know God. You can know God. Why? Because of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. He goes on to say in Jeremiah, for I will forgive their sins and I'll remember their sins no more. See, the difference between the Old and New Covenant is the Old Covenant would just kind of cover up our sins and therefore when you sin again, there'd need to be another animal sacrifice so that sacrifice could cover that sin. But the New Covenant is a once for all. That when Jesus died, he died once for all. His blood doesn't just cover up our sins, it washes them all away. We can know this God personally. This is the blessing of the new covenant. It's the basis. It's the foundation. It's the only reason there's a new covenant is because Christ shed his blood. Do we value this? Do we, do we, has this gotten through our head? Has it sunk in yet how amazing this is that, that the God who made all things pursued us through his son? And has offered us this way to be right with him forever. Now, Jesus establishes this element of communion. We're going to remember the Lord. We're going to go to his table at the end of the service. But there's something else that happens here, right? After, as we read earlier about Judas, and Jesus had said, behold, the, you know, the hand of the man who betrays me at the table, and and they're all asking, who's the one who's going to betray us? Right after they're wondering, gosh, am I going to betray Jesus? I'm going to betray Jesus? What does it say in verse 24? Luke is putting these things together on purpose. It says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And I can almost picture how this is happening. Betray you? Who would betray you, Lord? Oh, Lord, I'd never want to betray you. Peter would betray you. Thomas, man, that guy never believes anybody. What about Thaddeus? We don't even know anything about that guy. Simon the Zealot, that guy's whacked. He would betray you. I'm the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, the obvious answer there would be, well, the one who reclines, right? That's the way we'd look at it in our culture. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, this, this is important. Because if we only see this bit that I'm about to talk about, well, I actually should say, if we only see the first bit, the fact that we, the, the, the sufferings of Jesus expose our des, the desire of the fallen or expose our fallenness, if we only see that, we'll just be condemned. If we, we, we see that, that no, it's, this is about the new covenant that God's provided for us through Jesus, that we can know God personally, that we can be right with God. If we stop there and think, okay, great, I know God, and then things happen the way he's going to talk about right now, we're going to be confused. We need to see, guys, the reasons for Christ's sufferings are to expose the desires of the fallen. They are to establish, be the basis of the new covenant, but also they're to prepare us as his followers for growth. Here's what growth looks like. First and foremost, it looks like greatness that requires the suffering of service. Now, it's really clear in this context, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to want to be great. Did you know that? Ambition is a good thing unless it's selfish. Being ambition, having a drive, having a goal, wanting to be in a better place, wanting to, to bear more fruit, be more productive, that's a good thing. You were made for that reason. God created us, he designed us to have ambition. In fact, listen, when people lose all ambition, you know what we call that? We call that a mental health crisis. 
There's a problem with us. There's, there's something broken about us when we lose ambition. We're called to want to be great. We have a sense that there's something we should be better than we are, that we should pursue something greater than we are. Here's the problem. We want to be great in our own eyes or in the eyes of other people. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be great, but I want you to know what I say greatness is. What greatness is in the eyes of Christ is serving the way he served. What, what church are you in right now? What's it called? Service. Where's the apostrophe? It's before the S. Because this is Christ's church. And he came as a servant. He's not saying, I want you to serve me, then I'll think you're great. Yeah, we are called to serve Jesus. He's saying, I want you to serve like me. Because that's what greatness looks like. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, a theme verse for our church, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness requires the suffering of service. I want you to keep that in mind. Next, look at verse 28. Those who, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. This is interesting because we're going to see next week they don't stay with him in his worst trial. But there's something here that Luke wants to see. Jesus says, you are those who stay with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, does that sound like a, an ex exaltation to a position of greatness? Yeah, absolutely. But notice what he's saying here. He's saying, this is going to happen because you've stayed with me in my trials. Now, here's what we're going to know about what we know about the disciples, right? The 12. Judas, of course, we're going to see what happens to him. You guys all know the story. But the other 11 disciples, history tells us that all but one of them, the Apostle John, was killed for their faith in Jesus. They all suffered. Now here's what we also know as we've been talking about, haven't we? That we're called to suffer, aren't we? we if we're going to be Jesus followers, we're going to experience some similar kinds of suffering. But here's the good news, right? There's a re the reward for the co-sufferer, those that suffer with Christ, is co-reigning with Christ. You can read about this in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to see a verse towards the end in, in 2 Timothy that says this very thing, that though we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. I mean, do, can you think of the privilege? Now, some of you go, I really don't want that. I don't want the pressure. Hey, man, there's no pressure when you reign with Jesus. You know why? Because he's reigning. <laughs> there's just glory. There's just goodness. There's just things as they're meant to be. The reward for the co-sufferer is, is co-reigning. This is important because, listen, one of the reasons we struggle with suffering is because we, we, the idea of reigning with Christ, I don't think anybody doesn't want that. The issue is, do I want that through suffering? I like the idea of a crown, but I don't like the idea of a cross. But Jesus is saying, this is the way it's going to work. It's the way it happens with me. It's the way it happens with all those who follow me. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, he says to, to, this is Jesus talking to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Satan enters Judas, but he demands for Peter. But what happens, verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So what Jesus is acknowledging there is, is that Satan is going to have an influence on Peter in a similar way that Satan had an influence on Judas. Verse 33, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Peter was 100% sincere when he said that. But Jesus says, look at verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, or until you deny three times that you know me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is saying, Peter, uh, my sufferings are going to prepare you for your growth, and part of that is you're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably. But failure is redeemable suffering. 
Hey, listen. I don't know how you failed this week or this morning. I honestly don't know. No one called me up and said, Pastor John, I saw these guys fighting in the car. Or that person who says they're really being disciplined with their diet had four cartons of Ben and Jerry's last night. I've not seen any of that. So if that's you, might be a word of knowledge, but I didn't see it. No, the reality is this. Listen, I don't know how you failed, but you know what I know? You failed. (laughs) So did I. Because we do this on a daily basis, man. We fail. We think, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to walk with the Lord. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to get up. I'm going to pray. Alarm goes off, snooze button. Alarm goes off again, snooze button. Alarm goes off again, snooze button. Lord, it's not my fault. No, Lord, I'm not going to lose my patience and take it out on my poor, dear wife. And then she asks you questions that you deem stupid. and Like, what do you, what do you want? You do it again. Lord, I'm going to actually invest in my kids. I want to be intentional about spending time with my kids or calling up that friend that I know needs some attention. I'm going to make sure I call them and see how they're doing. And then you get home from work, you're like, I'm just too shattered, man. You fail. I fail. All God's people fail. But that's redeemable suffering. Because we have a God in heaven a savior in heaven who prays for us like he prayed for Peter. He is always, book of Hebrews says, he's always living to make intercession for us. And that intercession, that prayer for us is not just with his words, it's with his wounds. He says, Lord, forgive them. He says, Lord, use this to grow them, change them. You know how you know that your your failures are being redeemed because you do what Peter does. When God brings you back, you say, Lord, I want to strengthen my brethren. I want to help them because I know their failures just like me and I want to help them walk through that failure. I want to help them trust God in that failure. This is why Jesus suffered. This is one of the reasons so that we would know this is what we have to expect if we follow him. Jesus never failed, but we fail. The cross shows that we fail. The sufferings of Christ shows that those even closest to Jesus fail, but he redeems us through that. Almost done, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now, let the one who has money bag take it and likewise a knapsack And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. And what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, in one sense, when Jesus is talking about this get a sword business, in one sense, There is an indication that he's saying, look, it's going to get rough and you have to defend yourself. But there's also an indication of what's about to happen next, which we'll get into next week. The scenario that's there. But what he quotes here when he says the scripture needs to be fulfilled, I was numbered among the transgression. Isaiah 53, a scripture written 700 years before the time of Christ. That scripture, read it for homework. Isaiah 53, if you've not read it before, read it. You know what Isaiah 53 teaches? About the suffering of the Messiah. That he's the suffering servant. And it was written 700 years before he came here. And Israel didn't recognize it. But Jesus fulfilled it. He did everything that God said would happen to the Messiah. Now, what's happening here? One of the things that Jesus is wanting these guys to see is, listen, ministry, I'm sending you out. And I sent you out before and you were, oh, it was wonderful and we didn't have to take any money and all our needs were met and so many people responded to our message and we cast out demons and we healed people. It was glorious, it was awesome, Jesus is great. I'm glad you enjoyed that. When you go out again, take a sword because people are gonna be against you and it's gonna have major risks. This is what Jesus says to all his followers. This is how his sufferings prepare us 
for our growth. What happens, listen, what happens when we finally accept the reality? Look, to follow Jesus means it requires, you know what, the suffering of service. To follow Jesus means I'm going to be a co-sufferer, but also means I'm going to reign with him. To follow Jesus means I'm going to fail all the time. I'm going to do way less than I should do for him and with him, but he's going to redeem me from all those failures. To suffer Jesus means I'm going to serve others. My life's going to be about others, and there's always going to be a new risk of suffering that I'm going to have to be willing to say, that's okay, because Jesus, you're worthy to be served because you first served me. Because this is what a suffering teaches us. So how do we respond to this? Where do we find hope in this? If Jesus suffered according to the will of God and his suffering led to the salvation of all who would ever believe and his suffering gave us all that we need to live the life that we have now and to have hope in the life to come because he resurrected after that suffering, guess what? That means all the pain that we go through as Jesus suffers has a reason. None of it is wasted. Even the pain that we, in a sense, have to expect as we pursue what we're meant to pursue. Well, there's that. We like that idea of that failure is a redeemable suffering because it's easy to fail. But what about when you're trying to do what's right and you still suffer for it? Jesus is telling us through his sufferings, listen, this is what it means to follow me. And I wonder how many of us right now are excited to follow him knowing that's true. Knowing that following Christ, and this is the way it's always been, folks, Come and challenge me if you want afterwards. I dare anyone to kind of show me how I took this out of context. If you think that I'm kind of just pulling one thing out of, out of Luke's gospel that's not taught in other scripture, read the whole book of 1 Peter because it's all about just what I'm talking about in this last point. This is not me and definitely not the Holy Spirit saying you're not good enough, you don't suffer enough. That's not the point. The point is, listen, the point is, the way we're going to see God save people in this world is that as we, as those who follow him, are willing to follow him no matter what the cost, so that when we suffer like everybody else in this world suffers, we know we're suffering for his cause, and, and we can still have hope and say, this is the hope we have. It's Jesus, the resurrected Savior. So we're even willing to enter into other people's suffering. Because we know that's greatness. We're willing to enter into other people's suffering because we know it's just the way that we're leading God's preparing us to reign with him. We're willing to enter into other people's suffering because we know that's the risk of serving other people. Are you guys following me? We're going to go to the Lord's table in just a minute. But before we do, let's talk about some responses here. Of these three reasons that Christ suffers, that Luke seems to lay out for us, the, that his suffering exposes our, the desire of, uh, of our fallen nature, that his sufferings provide for us the basis of the new covenant, this is the way we're right with God, not by what we do, not even by how we suffer, but by what he's done for us. But his sufferings also prepare us as his followers for growth, that we're going to grow through suffering. Which of these three is hardest for you to believe? Which reason for Christ's suffering do you struggle most to believe? Honestly, yeah, I want you to answer that question. Maybe you're sitting here going, all of the above, but I dare not say that. Why? Why is it so hard to believe? It's the clear testimony of Scripture. Now, I want to ask you guys to pray about something specific. And, and I mean this seriously, and it's not just because we have a need. We do have a need, but in one sense, we always have a need like this. But I'm going to ask you seriously to, if you consider Servants Church your church home, you've been here for more than three months too, because we want everyone just to sit for three months to make sure you think this is, you see this as your church home. But if this is your church home, I want you to commit 
I want you to be willing to consider, at least consider, committing 60 hours per year to serving someone else. It might seem like an odd number, but where that comes from is that if you serve in children's ministry and you actually prepare for your lesson and you're here on time and you stay until it's all put away, that comes out to five hours on the week that you'd serve. We ask you to serve one time a month. Five times 12 is 60. 60 hours per year to say, Lord, and it's costly. I'll tell you what, there's a reason I don't do children's ministry. Those little guys are hard to deal with. It's costly. The preparation that you need to do, if, and you should do it, is costly. Especially when you prepare really hard, you think, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going I'm to just rock this children's ministry lesson, I've got my craft ready, i got everything prepared, i got my lesson, I'm going to just, just blow their minds, their little minds, gonna, there's going to be a revival in the kids' class today, it's going to be amazing, and then they don't listen to you, and they pick their nose and put it on you, and all the bad stuff happens. <laughs> You've been there. I've been there. Yeah, if you, if you serve as an usher, that 60 hours might be one week here and one week at the second service. If you serve on the music team, that 60 hours might be the week that you play and then also some practice that week. So it's going to be different for different teams. And, and, and I want to be clear too, serving on a team does not make you loved by God or even loved by us, though we totally appreciate everyone's service. But the reason we have ministry teams is because it's a way for you to pursue the greatness that Jesus talks about. It's a way for you, listen, it's a way for you to suffer to benefit others. I already do that, John. I'm too busy. I know. But listen, if we're going to be Jesus followers, if we're going to demonstrate to those who come, and if you've come today and you're not a, you're not a Jesus follower yet, you're still kind of looking at this stuff. I hope you see something good in the way we treat each other. I really do. I believe you will. But one of the ways that we show the love of Christ is how we are committed to love one another and how we serve. Listen, I know it's tough, and there are seasons when it's just probably impossible to commit to service. I get that. But here's the reality. This is not just so that we can put on a service. This really is so that we can demonstrate the goodness of Christ's suffering for us.